Uh, I want to explain to you today why it's so important we get Israel right when it comes to the events at the end of the age. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome, friends, to our Thoroughly Jewish Thursday broadcast. This is Michael Brown. Delighted to be with you. What a privilege to come your way during these times of upheaval, these unprecedented times. For me, life goes on the way it has for many years in that we do our radio show, we write, we seek to communicate, minister to you in many other ways. Big change is no travel. I was on the road maybe 200 days last year. So I'm home getting to pour into more people in more different ways without leaving the house or leaving the studio. But I know for many others, it's a time of massive upheaval and real challenge. So I'm blessed to have this time with you. Thank you for letting me come into your homes, into your ears, wherever you're listening, podcast, watching, radio. Thanks for joining us. 866-34-TRUTH. Any Jewish-related question you've got, We'll get to as many calls as we can today, but we've got a lot of other ground to cover. I do want to talk about Israel in prophecy. I do want to talk about speculation about the Antichrist, which I mean in the, in the most serious way, not some conspiratorial, like, ooh, silly stuff, but what people are saying that, that just reminds you of how this can happen one day. We'll talk about that. But first, in Israel— there's a very difficult situation with the ultra-Orthodox Jews called the Haredim. The Haredim, it's literally uh, those who tremble, meaning those who tremble at, at God's word, God-fearers. So they are ultra-Orthodox Jews, many of them hostile to the modern state of Israel, but they live in Israel. They don't recognize the modern state of Israel as authentic because they believe the Messiah has to establish it. Uh, they, there are different groups among them, and then you have what are called the Hasidic Jews and the non-Hasidic Jews. When we just refer to the Haredim in general, we're normally referring to the non-Hasidic community, and they will have a, a primary leader that they look to. So this is several hundred thousand people, uh, maybe over a million at this point. I don't know exactly how many would fit right in this category I'm defining. It could be as high as a million and a half, but they have large families. 10, 12 kids or more, not uncommon. Uh, Many of them very poor because the men spend most of their day in in study of rabbinic texts. So earning a living is is kind of a secondary thing. This is the the higher calling. Uh, They they live in close proximity to one another. They are very, very communal. So the men praying together daily and studying together and, and the kids in large school classes together. So it's very, very communal, the mothers with the children in close proximity, one with another, because of which the spread of the coronavirus has been much more extreme in their midst. As we reported some weeks ago, that even though they made up about 12% of Israel's population, they actually uh, made up 40 to 50% of those infected with the disease. And also some of their leading rabbis initially were slow to comply with the regulations, feeling, hey, this is, this is not the time to 
tell us to stop doing what we do. We, we fear God. We honor God. We pray. We study. That's the greatest thing we can do to protect the nation. And, and then there's the skepticism of Israeli authorities to start. So because of that, the infections have been higher. So there's a story now in the Jerusalem Post that there is a conflict between the two most senior ultra-Orthodox rabbis, so the Haredi rabbis, <clears throat> one of whom in his early uh, 90s, I think, Rav, uh, Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky, he is normally considered to be the most senior. There was one that just died around 100 years old or older. He was looked at as the, the number one and Kanievsky the number two. But these men are highly revered. These men, when they speak, their community takes it as if they're speaking from God. And every day people come to them wanting legal advice, meaning according to rabbinic law, is this permitted? What about this situation? This has come up. How should we decide this? What's right? What's wrong? And they'll listen and they'll give their input and they do it. It's, that's it. It's as if God said it. You know, it's, it's sacrosanct for them. So uh, according to the story, uh, Rav Kanievsky said, time to go back to school. Open up the schools. Let everyone study and learn together. God will protect us. This is the most important thing we could be doing. And this was supposed to be published in the main newspaper that is read in the ultra-Orthodox community. According to the story in the Jerusalem Post, uh, the, the, the man that would be kind of the, the next highest authority, what, probably in his late 80s, something like that, that he said, no, no, don't print it. Don't publish it because he thought it would be unwise, apparently. Now, the two men have a good relationship from what we understand and refer people one to another. You go to him for this, you go to him for this. But as it turns out, uh, they publicly said, no, this is all lies. Everything's fine. We're issuing a statement together. Obviously, you don't know what's happening behind the scenes, but for sure, for sure, there is a major conflict right now, a major conflict in terms of should the ultra-Orthodox comply with the government guidelines or should they go on with their normal life? And look, it's a very similar situation. A church is saying, well, do we come together and trust God or is that foolishness? Is that presumption? So there is a leading modern Orthodox rabbi. So he's not ultra-Orthodox. He's not Haredi. He would not be respected by the Haredi community, but widely respected in a lot of the rest of the Jewish world. A rabbi, uh, Irving, also known as Yitz Greenberg, better known as Yitz Greenberg. So Rabbi Greenberg posted an op-ed in the Jerusalem Post, and it's compassionate. Uh, and, and in this op-ed, I just want to uh, pull it up here. Uh, here we go. Uh, coronavirus and the Haredim. Uh, and he says, proper understanding of the Haredi situation includes acknowledging the legitimate factors that increase their vulnerability to the pandemic. And, and here's, here's what he says. He says in, in Nazi Europe that the, the Haredi community was very slow to act and move. Number one, God's going to protect us. Number two, we can't move to Israel until the Messiah comes. He has to establish Israel. They stayed where they were. And in some cases, 90% of their communities were wiped out. 90% wiped out. And he says, before the Holocaust, many Hasidic leaders told their followers not to go to Israel or America, here specifically Hasidic. During the catastrophe, many advised strongly against flight, especially when done in cooperation with Zionists and strongly opposed resistance. 
The outcome was a much higher percentage of deaths among Haredim approaching 90% average. But nobody would think of condemning the victims for following bad advice and policies. Bad judgment does not justify rejection or hatred of innocent victims. Haredim are flesh and by flesh and bone and by mode of the Jewish people. They deserve compassion and care at this time of their troubles. But then Rabbi Greenberg says, but, but look, you cannot just look at everything as supernatural. He quotes rabbinic sources that say that the world, the natural world, operates based on natural order. And, and that rather than just looking at this as a plague, or he quotes Rav Kanievsky for saying that this is judgment, coronavirus was judgment because of gossip, and if, and if the Jews will repent of gossip, then the plague will leave. He's saying you've got to be practical. So he's saying don't, don't hate these people. Don't be angry at them for doing what they're doing. But, but, he, but he says, look, you've you got to look at this differently. So he, he notes that Haredi theology they see sickness and natural catastrophes as divine punishment for their sins rather than as natural phenomena. In other words, everything that happens is, is, is sent by God for one reason or another in their thinking. So he quotes the Talmud, the natural order operates objectively. He explains that the book of Job is in the Bible to teach us that calamity and hardship can come on the righteous as well as on the unrighteous. And he says uh, the flip side of punishment for sin is the Haredi teaching that if you're doing a religious act— God will keep you safe. Quoting from the Talmud, those who are agents doing a mitzvah will not be harmed. So in other words, in, in other words, if we're doing God's work, if we're following Torah, if, if we're studying Torah, if we're praying, then God will protect us. Therefore, we should come together. So the ultra-Orthodox community in Israel is facing something similar to what many Christians in America face, especially those who believe in healing and the power of God. Hey, we'll come together and trust God. And some have said that very thing and have since died. So his appeal is don't hate them. Don't hate the Haredim. Understand their background. Understand how they look at government authority. Understand how they look at everything through a certain spiritual lens. But they need to act with wisdom here. Same counsel that I'm giving my Christian brothers and sisters. Act with wisdom and heed these guidelines. Otherwise, you're going to get sick like everybody else. Uh, I, I heard this probably during one of the breaks here on the radio. So every single day, we have a couple minutes breaks through the show, right? And if you're listening on your local radio station, you're hearing an ad that comes on from your local station. It could be a local car dealer. It could be some church advertising something. You hear that. I hear a feed that goes out to everyone that's listening online. So it could be Chuck Swindoll with a, a word for today or John MacArthur with a word for today or, or something else. So there's one clip I've heard many a time. I don't even know who the person is, and then I think of it, because I'm the only busy during the break. I'm checking notes with our team, or I'm uh, online looking something up or replying to something time-sensitive during the, the two- or three-minute breaks we have. But I've heard this one many a time. I just don't know who said it. But the story's told that a boy is watching a boxing match with his dad on TV, and he notices that before... Uh, the, the fight starts that one of the boxers crosses himself. You know, you'll often see that with an athlete with Catholic background, especially, you know, or a boxer because it's dangerous what they're about to do. They cross themselves. And uh, he, he said to his dad, does that help? And the father said, only if he can punch. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I've shared that recently to say, yes, we invoke God. Yes, we pray. Yes, we look to the Lord. And in many situations, he is our only hope. It's God or we're done. It's a miracle or it's over, right? 
That, that we understand. But we don't put ourselves in harm's way, as we've been talking about through the week and through the weeks. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. We don't knowingly and needlessly, that's the key thing, knowingly and needlessly put ourselves in harm's way and ask for a miracle. And that would also be a Talmudic mentality, as we've, we've talked about during this week. Don't depend on a miracle, meaning don't put yourself in a situation where you need a miracle, and then you're depending on God for a miracle. If you need one legitimately, that's a different situation. So pray. Pray for the ultra-Orthodox community. Pray that God would open their hearts and minds. Pray that in the midst of the suffering and the loss and, and the questions about life and reality and God, that their eyes would be open to the suffering Messiah, the one who took our place, that we could live. We'll be back with your calls and a ton more. Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday on the Line of Fire. A lot of news to cover, some fascinating things going on in Israel. Scripture we want to look at. But first, let's grab a few calls. We'll start in Pennsylvania with Michael. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Michael Brown. Hey. I have a question about a specific lexicon. I study Hebrew, so I thought yeah. I'd ask your opinion on it. Have you heard of, and what do you think about, Wilhelm Justinus' Hebrew and Chaldee lexicon to the Old Testament scriptures, particularly one uh, translated by William Tregellis? Yeah, uh, Samuel Tregellis, you mean. Yeah, uh, that's oh, yes. yeah. That was a foundational work uh, in the 1800s, but it's been improved on massively, massively, massively for many decades now. So the, of course, I, I own that, but that was that was an early one. Uh, then it was displaced by the edition by Brown, Driver, and Briggs, which is still the standard one. That was around 1906. Okay, so that's still worth getting. Tregel's one that's that's completely outdated. So uh, the Brown Driver Briggs, that's an important one. Uh, then what happened is a brand new project was launched by, by Kohler and Baumgartner, Ludwig Kohler and, and, and Walter Baumgartner. And that, started, that came out in the 50s. And then that's been updated and become a major standard work. So that's the Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon. Kohler, Baumgartner, and others. Uh, that's available in English, but that's expensive. And then David Kleins started a whole new endeavor in an eight-volume Dictionary of Classical Hebrew, which expands on anything that's been done before. And that's of great, great value. So I own those, plus, plus a bunch of others. What I would encourage you to get, though, if you're, if you're uh, wanting to stay in the Gazenius tradition and get something that's inexpensive— it's just get the Brown Driver Briggs lexicon. If you have uh, online, uh, if you have Bible software like Accordance or Bible Works or Logos, it's pretty standard to have that lexicon, the Brown Driver Briggs. Uh, you can get it. Hendrickson has a nice edition of it. But that's what you'd want to get. The Tregellis one, like I said, is completely outdated. 
And then there's an excellent one by Franz Buhl that came out maybe 1917, if I remember that. You have to read German for that one, and that's expensive. Uh, so if you want to stay with the Gesenius tradition, then the Brown Driver Briggs, but it's over 100 years old, but still of value. Is his name pronounced um, Justinius or Justinius? I've heard a different one. Gesenius. The, the Gesenius. S in German is, is, is a Z in sound, so Gesenius, okay. yeah. I'd heard a different one. Um, just one last question, and then I'm yeah. done with mine. Do you think um, the word definitions in his, because I own his and I use it, do you think the word definitions are good? He talks about what the word Adam means and other Hebrew word means. Do you think those are good? And that's it for my question. Yeah, so uh, number one, the definitions are, for the most part, excellent. But etymology, trying to determine the background of the word, where it came from and other Semitic languages, uh, the study of what's called the Syriology was much newer then. So there's been so much advance of that in study of ancient Babylonian and Assyrian, the Akkadian language. Uh, Ugaritic was not yet discovered. That was discovered in the late 1920s. And uh, that, of course, has enhanced our understanding. Eblaite came after that. So there's so much more that we understand in terms of background, other Semitic languages, uh, more theories about etymology and how things develop. So you don't want to take everything in there as absolutely authoritative. And, it's, and if you're talking about Gazenius Trigels, that's even earlier. So Brown Driver Briggs and after, yeah, the, the main definitions of the words are excellent, but Brown Driver Briggs will cite so many examples. Look them up. Look up each of the examples and see how the word is actually used in context. That's the key thing. Hey, keep studying, man. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Adelia in Kansas. Hey, welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Uh, I'm 12 years old. I don't have a Jewish-related question, but my Bible question is, in the book of Matthew, did the demons die when Jesus cast them out of the man and into the pig? Oh, uh, no. First, Adelia, because you're 12 years old, you get to ask a question on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday, even if it's not a totally Jewish question. All right? So, um, and it sounds like your dog in the back has a question, too. Uh, yes, I can. Yeah. Okay. No, no. If uh, Demons would not die. They would go to a place of torment until God destroyed them. So the whole thing is they didn't want to be cast into the pit. In other words, that would be like being thrown in prison, and they would wait there until Jesus returned and then cast them into a lake of fire. They still wanted to be active, and Jesus obviously wanted to make a point and, and demonstrate how, how destructive these were. So he cast them into the pigs. The pigs died, but now those demons would be free to roam around and try to find somewhere else to live, meaning find some person that they could live in. But Jesus demonstrated how evil they were, how powerful they were, how destructive they were, and they were all inside of, of one man. So there was something Jesus was demonstrating through this. But no, the demons didn't die because you, you can't drown a spirit or choke a spirit. The physical body dies, but the spirit lives on. In this case, the demonic spirit lives on. So they would go, in other words, unless they've been cast into the pit, they're still around somewhere today. The same demons that were in those pigs are around doing something wicked and evil today. Oh, thank you. 
You are very welcome. Hey, how do you come to listen to the broadcast? Oh, well, um, we go on Facebook and we see your live and we watch it. And your aunt. Yeah, and my aunt went to um, the School of Ministry. Oh, in, in, in Pensacola or in North Carolina? Uh, in Pensacola. All right, so this thumbs up here is just for you and for your aunt. Hey, thanks for calling in. God bless you both. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. All right. 866-34-TRUTH. Well, that was very sweet. Uh, let's go to Neil in Wisconsin. Thanks for calling the Dr. line of fire. Hey. How are you? Doing well, thanks. Um, in 2002, I was blessed enough to see you in Santa Clarita. I, like you, am a Jewish male um, who, in 2002, God was pleased to crush me and to reveal his son to me and in me. And one of my first hearts was after revival. Don't know why. Mm. And um, naturally, I got on the web, and your name came up. And the very first sermon I ever listened to, I have to commend you for, besides my home pastor, was a Holy Desperation can't tell you how many times I've listened to that song. The reason I'm calling is in January, God led me to Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah. And then at the beginning of this month, I started again to walk through it. In many ways, it's like walking barefoot through ground glass. And I'm also pleased to have your wonderful commentary. And from your commentary, I just read just this morning, you said God's chief complaint against the nation, Israel, was idolatry. And I'm not going to go into the area of, you know, this current crisis we're in, but I read through Jeremiah, and my heart just breaks. I can only make it through two chapters a morning, eating mm, of mm. the Word. And um, could it be that we're being punished? I mean, how long would God put up with, 60 million yeah. little souls being wiped from the earth. Or yeah. maybe our legions going through the world and killing innocents. And I'm not, you know, I don't want to get into all that whole No, thing. no, I, Neil, I, I hear you. And first, uh, I understand the burden and the intensity of it, my brother. Uh, writing yeah. the, the commentary on Jeremiah and spending years intimate with the book, uh, yeah, you feel the pain, you feel the trauma of it, the, the horror, the, the sense of of national guilt, the sense of judgment being at the door. And we could easily make a case for any terrible thing that happens being divine judgment that we deserve. In other words, be it a hurricane, a tsunami, uh, a virus, a pandemic, anything that happens, there's so much guilt on the planet, so much guilt in the human race, that it would be very easy for us to interpret all of them as divine judgments. And some would say, hey, nothing is going to happen without God's will, and therefore this is all something that he's willing and bringing. I, I would say this, though, in, in all candor. I don't know that I can say that the virus is a specific divine judgment. In other words, many things happen in this world that are not specific divine judgments. Jesus says in Luke 13, unless you repent, you'll all perish. In other words, Bad things happen, but we all deserve bad things outside of God's grace and mercy. So I don't believe that we had a sufficient word from God to tell the world judgment's coming. Just think of this. Think of for one year around the world, Christian leaders had been standing up saying, 
we need to repent of something specific, bloodshed, human trafficking, abortion, whatever, okay, idolatry. We need to repent or judgment's coming. God's going to send a plague and it's going to paralyze the world, right? Think if we had been doing that for a year solid. And then this came. The whole world would then know this was judgment. They could still reject it, but they would know it. Remember, Jeremiah prophesied for years and years and years and years before the specifics came. So that's why I don't see this primarily as a judgment from God, although he's certainly working through it. But I see it as a wake-up call. I see God waking us up through this, and I am desperate in my heart to see that we get this right. Because if we do not get it right, it could be real, real calamity in the days ahead. May the Lord satisfy the longing of your heart as you seek him. God bless you. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey, friends. Whoa. All right. We got a lot of music playing there. All right. Welcome to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. I want to take a break from phones and Israeli news and things like that, and speak to some dear friends, Marty Getz and his daughter, Misha. I've had the joy of being in worship services with them over the years and uh, many years before Misha participated with her dad. And there's a wonderful anointing on their lives. They are modern-day psalmists in terms of just bringing us into the presence of God with anointed words and music and there's something special going on. We just wanted to share with all of you watching and listening. So, Marty and Misha, welcome to the Line of Fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown. Hi. <laughs> hey. Hi, you sound like you're right next door to me. So, I know. Good. Yeah. So uh, let, me, let me just ask you this question first, Marty. When did you realize the power of music in, in the context of worship and connecting people with God? Wow, that's a big question. Um, you know, the, as to realizing the power of it, you know, I have to admit that as one who does it, it's, it's, I'm, I think my eyes are a bit uh, maybe veiled to that. Um, but I, I, I much, you know, you're, you're, you're the scholar and you've really studied this more than I have. But I, I think probably right, right when I became, first became a believer, and it was at a place called the Vineyard in, in Southern California, and I remember walking into that congregation. It was, it was the first vineyard, which actually was a Calvary chapel led by a guy named Ken Gullickson, and he had written a song called Charity, which is a big, big song way back in the 70s. And then he had, and I was a, I was a brand new believer, and they they lifted up their hands and sang these little just these little choruses, and just the whole room filled with 
just what you said, that word anointing, you could feel you were walking into some place that was different than anything you'd ever experienced. And, you know, people like you and me, we grew up in synagogues, and we, we did experience a degree of power from, you know, hearing the cantor, the chant, the ancient uh, prayers and things like that. There was a degree of it, but it wasn't the kind of almost a, a sense of a presence that was outside of yourself <laughs> that kind of filled the whole room. And that was really when I got the first taste of that. And then I began to sit down and put music, put music to the scriptures. The first scripture I ever put music to was the, the 23rd Psalm. And I, I got a chance to sing it there at the vineyard. And you could see that people just entered in to the words and the experience, and to be truthful, I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> yeah, and 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 uh, Marty, can you think of a specific testimony among many where where God has used the music He's given you? It's obviously all to His glory. As a fellow Messianic Jew, we understand this is this is all God's work. But uh, a story of that you heard personally of how God used a song you you have written or sung, how it transformed someone's life? My, my. Um, you know, I, 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 I think I would say that, I, though I don't rem- I can't call to mind an exact specific reference, but I have, I have had myriad uh, letters of people sent to me saying, you know, I well, I will say one experience. There was a, because out of it came a, a DVD that we did, or a, at the time it was a videotape called uh, Psalm Enchanted Evening. <laughs> and it was, uh, actually it's been changed, the title's been changed to In Concert with Marty Getz, but it was, it was a, a, a lady in Toronto, a Jewish lady, who was in severe depression, and she just couldn't get out of it. And uh, I think it had to do with something, you know, I, I don't want to say because I can't remember the exact circumstances, but it was a very personal uh, experience that she had had in her life. I don't know if I, I it's, for some reason I call it might have, have something to do with a miscarriage or something like that. It was something having to do with her family life. And she was severely just uh, sad and it was having uh, physical problems and everything attached to this. And she came to one of my concerts at the City of David, led by uh, Jeff Foreman, Jeff and Janet Foreman, up in Toronto. And she said that when she came out of that service, it had completely lifted all of that depression, all of that that she was going through, even whatever physical uh, manifestations that it had. And this is this is one example, and then she was so moved by it, she wanted to recreate it for a broader public, so she she actually uh, posited the idea of our doing a, a concert, a live concert. We ended up recording it, and we and it's one of the, the things that we carry with us when we travel, just uh, in concert. And that's one of, of many uh, letters we get and reports from people who, who have experienced a degree of healing, or there have been some miraculous ones, you know, like people who have in their body that, that something was healed. And, and this, you know, uh, this is more than often, more than not, I get uh, more, than, uh, more than a few times I've gotten letters from people that it's not exactly a miracle to report, but, 
Many people have uh, told us that they've listened to our music during things like childbirth and and even seeing their loved ones going into the presence of the Lord. We get quite a few of those wow. reports of, of, of bringing comfort to people. As a matter of fact, just I'll, I'll sh- stop after this. You know, you remember, of course, because you knew him well, was Dr. Richard, Richard Wormbrand, and uh, who was the, you know, the founder of the Voice of the Martyrs and who suffered greatly at the hands of the communists. He, we got reports from him from a friend who cared for him that he, he during near the end of his life, he had a lot of uh, the trauma was manifesting in kind of like anxiety, and he would go into these kind of uh, fits of, of of real anxiety and real uh, almost you know a little bit out of control. I don't you know all those years of suffering probably coming yeah, up yeah. through his. And that when they played this particular video that I just mentioned, he would calm down and he would mm. get very peaceful. And he would, mm. and right to the day he died, we heard that he was listening to it. So there's a few, a few reports. I don't keep as I don't keep as good a track of them as you do, but there's a few reports oh, from our history. Yeah, that's so amazing to hear God's God's power, His Word, His Spirit through music. Extraordinary, Misha. When did you realize? that this was not just something your dad did, but this was something you were called to do as well? Well, um, you know, I grew up playing piano from the time I was about five years old. Um, now I'm, I'm 29, but I grew up playing and I grew up singing with my dad from the time I was a little girl. People would ask me when I started doing that, and I, when I started singing with him, and I, I really don't remember because I've been doing it as long as I can remember. But I never thought I would um, do it professionally or as my own ministry until people started asking me uh, when my album was coming out. (laughs) (laughs) And at the time, I didn't have any plans to do an album. I had just written a song um, from the book of Numbers uh, 6, 24 through 26, the ironic uh, benediction or blessing that a lot of people are familiar with, and especially Jewish people, I had written a melody to that, and I had begun performing it um, at the age of about 17, and and that's when people started asking, when was I going to do an album? And so a couple years later, I did, and I just kind of found myself in full-time ministry, very similar uh, to my dad. <laughs> And and what's it like for you as you as your dad ministering together or you're ministering on your own, ministering in music, and you see people connecting with God? Are you looking around, or are you just focused in on the Lord yourself? Well, something they, you know, mentors of mine have said in worship leading, or maybe my dad has told me this, um, is to keep one eye on God and one eye on the room when you're leading in music ministry so that you can sense where the Holy Spirit is leading and follow that, but that you can also be sensitive to um, what's going on in the room, you know, if you need to change something or go somewhere else. Um, so, yes, I, when I'm leading, I definitely um, i am engaged with what I feel like the Holy Spirit is speaking, but you also, you know, you want to balance that as well with um, the people in the room and when we sing and we play our songs, I think especially because most of them are from Scripture, they, uh, I'm grateful 
that they really do speak to people yeah. and move on their hearts. All right, so, so folks, you might say, well, boy, I've never been in one of their meetings. I would love to be. Well, here's the good news. You can right <laughs> in your own home. So, so Marty, tell the folks what's happening every week and how they can participate. We've got about two minutes to do it. Well, thank you, Dr. Brown, and we gave a shout-out to your folks the other, the other night. But uh, I, I, do you mind if I defer to Misha because she's Misha, better at the go, details? Right? Go for it. Go for it. I, thought that, I, I felt that coming. Go ahead. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So we are doing our own house of worship from our living room to yours um, until we're on the road again, which that might be a while. Who so knows? We're doing it on Tuesday nights and Friday nights at 7 p.m. Central. Tuesdays and Fridays, 7 p.m. Central for about an hour. And Tuesday, you, Tuesday and Friday, not Tuesday. Tuesday and Friday, 7 p.m. Central. And you can watch on Facebook, MartyGets.com. Um, you can visit MartyGets.com and get the links to Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram. So your social media platform of choice, just look up Marty Gets, find his page, and you can join us every week, twice a week. All right, so that right. is gets as in G O E T Z. MartyGets.com. So, friends, join in Tuesday nights, Friday nights, so 8 o'clock Eastern Time, 7 o'clock Central Time. Work it out around the rest of the country. Uh, I plan to check it out one of these nights. And uh, let's, let's join together and encounter God by the thousands, the tens of thousands, the millions then let's be changed and go out and change the world around us. Hey, can't wait to see you both and minister together side by side in the days ahead. God bless you. Thank Thank you, Dr. Brown. We appreciate you. Shalom. Shalom. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Yeah, that is. Oh, that's just beautiful stuff. Marty and Misha gets. So that's from one of the worship nights. So you can join them as they share Tuesday and Friday nights, 7 p.m. Central Time. Marty gets G O E T Z dot com. And check out all the other resources of Marty and Misha there. All right, I, I do want to go back to the phones. I want to respond to one other question that was called in as well as posted on Facebook. And a um, fascinating story I want to look at as well. But I want to give you an assignment. I want to give you an assignment, okay? I know that if, if you're watching online, there's a caption about today's show as we focus on why it's so important to understand Israel's role in prophecy. And if you're listening right from the beginning at the, the top of the hour— That's how we started things off, talking about that. But I'm going to give you an assignment. I'm going to 
come back to this in more depth next week, okay? All right, so I'm giving you an assignment, a study assignment. I want you to study Zechariah chapter 12 and Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah 12 and Zechariah 14. I am telling you my position that the only legitimate way to understand these passages is referring them to the end of the age that they have not yet come to pass. Now, I'm quite aware that Zechariah 12.10 is quoted in uh, John, the 19th chapter, that they looked to the one they pierced. And I could explain why that's quoted and how that's quoted. But my contention is that you must rewrite these passages, that you must change them into something that the plain sense does not agree with, that you have to overly spiritualize them in a way that the Bible does not allow, in order to say that they already took place. And that therefore, when you have these detailed future prophecies with Israel in the center, if you get that wrong, everything else is going to be wrong. Uh, I've, I've often mentioned this, but I heard from Derek Prince's grandson that Derek Prince said that Israel, in the Bible, Israel is like the first button on a shirt. And if you get that wrong, you accidentally button the first hole and the second hole, then all the other buttons will be off everything else will be off. So that's your assignment. If you believe Zechariah 12 and 14 have already been fulfilled and do not speak of a yet future event, I want you to bring your argument next week to Thirdly Jewish Thursday. So you have a whole week to work on that, God willing. Say God willing, because who knows what a week will bring. All right? So you have your assignment. It was a question that was posted on Facebook and then called in by CJ when I'm debating rabbis, why don't I bring up the fourth man in the fire in Daniel, the third chapter? In other words, why don't I say, look, Nebuchadnezzar said there's a fourth one in the fire, and, and he looks like the son of God. The reason is that the Aramaic phrase used there could just as well be understood as son of the gods. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, who was not a worshiper of Yahweh at that point, he has a deeper encounter in the fourth chapter, right, and, and some revelation in the second chapter. But here he is still a pagan king, and uh, all he could be saying was, well, it looks like a divine being, like a son of the gods. So it is for that reason, for that reason that uh, we, uh, we don't use that argument. In other words, there's going to be an immediate comeback. If he had plainly said, and there was, it was indisputable, that one looks like the Son of God. And we'd say, well, who was the Son of God? And what did he know of the Son of God? And how could he have known it? Uh, but you'll see many translations understand it as like a divine being, meaning a son, a son of one of the gods, some, some divine being. So in any case, in any case, um, that's why. That's why I don't use I, I want to use an argument that's not going to have an immediate rebuttal and a legitimate potential rebuttal. Now, do I read it and see that was the Son of God? Do I read it and see, yeah, that, that's the Son of God. That's Jesus. Well, that's my assumption, yeah, that he was the one in the fire with him. But can I say for sure that Nebuchadnezzar was actually saying something to that effect? No, no. So that's why I don't use the argument in a primary way. I might use it in a secondary way to say, hey, here's a potential example. All right. Fascinating story from Israel. I just spotted this last night, but it was from February 20th 
Ryan Jones reporting on Israel Today. And the article headline says, Israeli rabbi says he's already holding meetings with Messiah. Israeli's biggest rabbis are all afraid to leave the country lest they miss Messiah's coming. And uh, here, according to the article, Rabbi Yaakov Zischoltz on Sunday told religious broadcaster Radio 2000 that Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky recently told him that he, Kanievsky, is already in direct contact with the Messiah. All right, now, Rabbi Kanievsky, according to someone who's followed him for many years, ultra-Orthodox rabbi, told me that he would often talk about the Messiah's near, the Messiah's almost here, the Messiah's, he's coming any minute, or I, I know he's coming soon. So that's been something he said for years. So things must be taken in context in terms of he said certain things that would indicate a certain time frame before, so it has to be understood that he talks a certain way, okay? But he has tremendous sway in Israel. And remember that with the, with the coronavirus pandemic in Israel and many, many ultra-Orthodox Jews being affected, that there is talk about Messiah's coming or the Messiah's going to be here with a cure or by the Passover. And obviously, that didn't happen. But what are we to make of this idea that he, he's met with the Messiah privately? Now, traditional Judaism believes that in every generation there's a potential Messiah. So there is a righteous rabbinic leader in the eyes of traditional Judaism that is so influential and and doing such a work and has God's hand on his life in such a unique way that if the generation would be worthy, that that person could emerge as the Messiah. You say it's an odd concept. I don't see that in Scripture. I understand. I agree with you. But that's been something that has been held in certain traditional Jewish circles for many, many years. Now, here's what's interesting. There are articles written about Iranian leaders and others who on a regular basis have met with the Islamic Mahdi, the the end-time redeemer figure, the the hidden imam who's going to be revealed. Now you have the idea of a hidden messiah who's going to be revealed. Do I think that this means that there is about to be an antichrist revealed, a false messiah, a false redeemer revealed? and that the world will be duped. No, I, I don't think it's yet, but I think this is showing us how these things could happen and how with a deeper crisis and then a certain leader emerging, how millions of religious people could follow and say, this is the, the Messiah or this is the Redeemer. Or, or Remember, false Christ, false Messiahs, false prophets will arise. So this doesn't surprise me. Again, just another indication that things are getting closer, but are we there yet? Not, in my view. All right, do I have time to get one last call? Let's go to New York. Josh, thanks for holding. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Uh, hey. I just wanted to thank you for all your work. My joy, sir. I basically wanted to ask you a question on Jewish apologetics. Yeah. Um, I know you're familiar with the famous Kuzari argument, and I came across it recently except I found it very confusing and I guess a bit not compelling. Yeah. When it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, we have four independent gospel accounts. We have the traditions that Paul uses. We have the letter of Marabar Serapian that alludes to a killed Messiah or king. Uh, can you maybe put some, give me your opinion on the Kuzari argument? Yeah, and, and state it as you understand it just for our listeners. So the Kuzari says that you can never pass off a national revelatory history to a nation 
without them questioning it and rejecting it unless it was true. Right. So the claim, the claim would be that when you have the, the claim made in Scripture that God delivered Israel from, from Egypt, and then at Mount Sinai spoke to the whole nation, and now this is considered to be truth by the rest of the nation, then it therefore must have happened, and that you don't have any parallel to that with any other world religion, that it was before the whole nation, and, and that's one of the proofs of Judaism. So you're right. I, I agree with you as, as to it being a non-compelling argument. And my immediate response is, actually, traditions can be foisted on people. Here, for example, you have all traditional Jews around the world believe that God gave an oral law to Moses on Mount Sinai, and yet there's no evidence of anyone holding to that view up until the last 2,000 years. No evidence of it whatsoever. So the point is, you can have a tradition that then grows, grows, grows. For example, the Pharisees certainly believed that they were passing on traditions from generation to generation, which the New Testament then calls the traditions of the elders. But then it gets forced back. No, 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 not just our fathers. But therefore, no, 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 all the way back to Moses. So you can create a legend and that now at a certain point, everybody believes the legend. But let's just say it's true. Of course, we believe it's true. God revealed himself at Mount Sinai. So I'd add to the argument, Josh, that you have three years of Jesus working miracles throughout the land of Israel, signs, wonders, and miracles for three years, not just an event on Mount Sinai, but for three years demonstrating God's power. Then, yes, all the gospel accounts about the the resurrection, my my new book, Resurrection, explains why those are so compelling. And then after that, the ongoing outpouring of the Spirit in His name to the Jewish people in Jerusalem and around the world to this day. Far more compelling than to say something happened at Mount Sinai 30-something centuries ago.